they take generally better care of themselves to avoid dangerous activities, such as going outside. He claimed that the NHS made poorer people pay comparatively more of their earnings than the rich on healthcare, and that we should instead look to Singapore for a health service done right. He's <coughs> with the proposition Mr. Mitchell Davidson, the main speaker. He claimed that privatization would certainly give us more money, but it would be more money that would simply be thrown around aimlessly within the deeply flawed infrastructure of the NHS. He claimed that private healthcare would lead to lower quality of service as companies look to make profit rather than treat patients, a setup which he claimed was immoral and impractical. Speaking second of the opposition, it was Hugh Dodd. He claimed that the opposition never mentioned privatization, the proposition were attempted to take the moral high ground. He claimed that the NHS is indeed free at the point of use, but said point of use is getting more and more difficult to get to. While waiting lists get longer and longer, Mr. Dodd paradoxically channeled the bombastic vernacular of Nye to appeal for reform of our national health service. Concluding for the proposition of so the day was Mr. Peter Beck. He asserted that no society can claim to call itself civilized if some of its citizens are left to die due to inappropriate or inaccessible medical care. He claimed that the opposition were cherry-picking facts and that to impose charges for the use of NHS would be economically, socially, and morally wrong. <coughs> he appealed for realistic health care based on evidence rather than political football. <coughs> Concluding the opposition of so the day was Mr. Chris Spratt. Mr. Spratt explained his role as the closing speaker, noting that he didn't really have much to say. He claimed that the case of Singapore was indeed interesting, <coughs> particularly so as, in Mr. Spratt's words, the government will always try and make clean time He lauded neoliberalism as the biggest show in town before asking the proposition if they wanted free dentistry. <coughs> Questions were heard from Jason Bunting, Matthew Wilkinson, uh, Chief Predictor, Jerry Miller, and Peter Dunn. <coughs> a vote based on the House opinion prior to the debate was taken, which read 22 eyes, one nay, and five abstentions. Meanwhile, a casting vote based on speaker performance on the motion, this House uh, supports an NHS free at the point of care, was taken, which read 17 eyes, two nays, and eight abstentions. May I take the minutes as well? And with that, we move on to private members' business. So, if anyone has any motions of condolence, uh, celebrations, salutations to anyone, or if they have any issues they'd like to bring before the House, then have a sort of miniature discussion. I'll take that. Uh, Dr. Miller? Do you think that we should have background checks on car rentals? Seeing as that's been used as a uh, terrorist weapon, like they've got, want to have background checks on guns in the States? Mr. McLean? Um, no, because it was very ineffective, because he was a British citizen, he could have gone easily in a real car. So we should just have guns that are legal? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone like to elaborate on that? I, I just remind all of our speakers that when they're making points to stand up. If someone's prepared to flaunt the law to the extent that they're going to kill people with a vehicle, you can't assume that they're going to be prepared to legally acquire a vehicle. And legislation will be working. Can I just ask you a name for the record as well, sorry? Uh, Patrick McKenna. Do you want to come back So what we're saying is that criminals won't follow the law. Yes. So there's no point having background checks on guns. Yeah. I feel like you're having a gun debate beside the side. The as a car debate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to throw papers on this issue before we move on. No? <laughs> I saw your face recording some of the what will I would have done. No. Right. Uh, anyone else have any other questions? Sure. Like the easiest thing to make a difference is that people need cars. They don't need guns. Typically, most situations in life, you know, 
no one needs a gun to get back and forth to work every day, whereas cars, you know, are a basic utility rather than what some might say and seem luxury. Does anyone have a response to that? We'll leave it on that note. Anyone else? We'll move on to the next motion piece of private members list today. Anyone has anything we'd like to bring before the House? Miss Um what would the House say about Nigel Farage's comment? I know he's a crowd pleaser, um, that had we not had open immigration from 1997, the attacks that we're seeing now wouldn't happen, and that multicultural mission is a failure. So, uh, now that I've done a little bit to say what do we think of the similar statement, what do we think of? Is, is multiculturalism a failure, or is that. Does anyone have an opinion on multiculturalism? Dr. Brown? Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've got multiculturalism in the UK. We've got pockets of different cultures that coexist next to each other. So I don't actually think this definition of multiculturalism that is supposedly what we have in the UK is actually in existence at all. So it's been a, an abject failure to actually create multiculturalism. And we actually have to do more to make sure that different cultures will actually mingle and integrate between each other rather than this whole the Polish people live here, the British people live here, the uh, Jewish people live here and you don't end up in a situation, and that's, that's what happens where I live, do you know what I mean? And you end up in a situation where there is no communication between any of the uh, actual minorities. So to clarify your definition, what your, your definition of multiculturalism would be? We've got coexistence of different minorities, we've got so we have co coexistence rather than integration or something. Yeah, we don't have any integration. <laughs> Does anyone have a response to that? So. Um, how can that situation be created without complete infringement upon personal and individual freedoms of choosing where you live and who you interact with? Are you going to impose, okay, you're Asian, then you have to be the white person, you have to be back in living on the same street? How does that work? I think to respond to that. Two words. Social housing. The government allocating housing to people and building houses like they haven't had in decades. That way we can reintegrate communities voluntarily by them taking up social housing and creating communities. Is Craig Miller going to advocate a broader left wing policy? Yeah. Uh, it's one of the few things I think me and Chris genuinely agree on, which is actually the fact that government don't build enough houses. They don't even go through the private sector to build enough houses, which is what I would probably prefer. But there aren't enough houses that are getting built. If the house prices are too high, it just encourages this pocketing of different cultures based on how much money that you've got. That's why we're in the situation that we've got, it's just house prices are too high.
I will pass over my secretary to the Dow uh, well, uh, we haven't briefed uh, Mr. Don, he's got it on the board, but um, we have been, we were discussing this in council on midweek, and uh, some members have voiced uh, some opposition to the uh, uh, sending condolences to the family of Mr. Martin, yes. Um, we had a long conversation about this, and we believe that, uh, first of all, we would like to send our condolences to the family of the uh, Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, not necessarily Mr. Martin McGuinness, it's the fact that the joint leader of our country, the former leader of our country, passed away in midweek, and we think that it's only fair to offer, as a big society in this country, our condolences to uh, his or her family, respectively. Um, and also, some members raised concern that uh, uh, a few years ago, when the Reverend Ian Paisley passed away, uh, that out of debate, we would not have had the opportunity to pass our condolences to his family. Um, and I listened back to the old debate, which would have concerned the time whenever he passed away. Uh, and there was no opportunity for private members business which was raised on that day. So uh, in lieu of any potential opportunity this one may have had to speak at that day to offer condolences to his family, uh, I would like to say that uh, we at the Literific would like to offer our condolences both to the family of the Deputy First Minister who passed away in midweek and also the family of the former First Minister who passed away in 2014. Here, I couldn't put it better myself. Does anyone have any other opinions on that motion? Uh, Dr. Mon? What about the families of the people that Martin McGuinness has killed? He's a terrorist, he killed people, and at the end of the day, we're just going to skirt over the fact that 3,500 people died. Uh, does anyone have a response to that? Uh, Ms. Arvind? I don't think anybody's been particularly skirting over the issue of the past of anyone involved in the struggle, particularly Martin McGuinness at this time, so I don't think that's particularly fair. I think it is fair to say that we can offer condolences at any point to any family affected by the troubles because this isn't an issue where one particular person is to blame. It's, it's, it's much more complex than that and I think that it's not skirting over uh, the issue to suggest that because a political and public figure has died that we should offer his uh, family condolences regardless. Uh, we did the same thing for Margaret Thatcher. Um, and I think people would have very similar arguments as uh, the one you've offered about her. Dr. Hull? I think sending condolences to his family basically implies that his family didn't know anything about what actions he was doing at the time. Uh, so I don't see that as being factually accurate. Secondly, uh, the guy has not shown any sort of remorse. Just today, Jerry Adams got up and stated that he was a freedom fighter and not a terrorist. So clearly there's no remorse there, and yet we're sending condolences to the family of a guy who has basically been involved in the death of 3,500 people, and we just got to stand here and stomach it. So you, you say that we, we can't give condolences to a family because of the actions of the husband, because they, because they knew what he did. They have still lost a husband, they have still lost a father. Is it not callous? ignore that. Is it not callous to refuse condolence to a family in grief simply by the actions of the deceased? Dr. Bell? In a word, no. Uh, and I think you've got to look at the role in which a husband and wife play in that sort of situation. Do we know what secrets the wife was privy to during the time where bombs were going off? No. Has he actually said, oh, I'm sorry for what I've done? No. He doesn't even believe he's a terrorist? No. 
Right, so we're basically sending condolences to a man's family who is absolutely integrated in the death of three and a half thousand people, and we're just going to ignore the three and a half thousand people that have died. We're not sending condolences to their family. Three and a half thousand people died. Where's the condolences that are mentioning to the, the, these victims' families? Right, we're just going to skirt over and go, actually, it's callous to not send condolences to him. I think the whole thing should be wiped off. We shouldn't be sending condolences to either people. Mm, this is a bit messy. <laughs> 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 um, sending condolences to all those families is not a responsibility just as a result of Martin McGuinness's death. He's died, he was the deputy first minister of this country, right? Regardless of your um, inner constitution on how you feel about what happened, there are a lot of people who had look up to him and see him as such a figure. I am completely of the belief that yes, the man was, he, he was a by definition terrorist, but that does not take away from the fact that his family, and then also he, he went against a lot of the things that he had done in the past, like shaking hands with the Queen and several things, you can speak after, and several things. His family deserved the condolences. Martin McGuinness isn't reading them. Martin McGuinness isn't reading them, and they've all forgiven me for <coughs> And countless news reports I've seen have not branded him Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, they've branded him IRA leader, all the kind of tributes to him. So it's not being scared over, it's being directly addressed in the media. I've seen three tribute videos to him, and they're all videos of him when he was at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, walking through the bog site, and you know, videos of him being escorted to jail, everything. It's not being scared over, it's just saying that as Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, his family deserves condolences, just as many others would get the same. Yeah, sorry, the gentleman over here is throwing the number of three and a half thousand around quite a lot. Can I ask, is it's that three thousand six hundred? Three thousand six hundred. Are, are you attributing all of those deaths to Mr. McGinnis personally? No. I've and is that troubles. the total number of deaths in the troubles yeah. or caused by? No. Three thousand six hundred on Wikipedia in the troubles. Okay. Clarify. And with that opinion, uh, I will just say. Uh, Personally, uh, my, my own personal opinions aside, I, I tried a very fine line as speaker having to, to remain as neutral as possible on this, these issues. Uh, the motion is centred on the fact that he was Deputy First Minister. It is sending condolences to the family of the recently deceased former Deputy First Minister, rather than the, the politician himself. The issue that we have in this society is that our constitution says that we're not allowed to have party polemics, we're not allowed to favour one politician over another. I should add that in the past we have passed motions of condolences to the family of Ian Paisley Sr, Margaret Thatcher, and I recognise that for a lot of people these are incredibly contentious motions to pass. Uh, now, most of the time when you're offering condolences it's simply a matter of, well, take for instance the, the, those who died in uh, the London tax yesterday. Of course I don't think anyone is going to stand up here and say we shouldn't offer condolences to, to them, but when it comes to a controversial person such as Martin McGuinness, I do not feel right and proper uh, passing this motion without putting it to the House. I am not going to speak for the, for the House. So I think it's fair in this instance that on the motion of this House would offer its condolences to the recently deceased former Deputy Finister, First Minister. I throw it to the House uh, because I, I, I can't possibly try and represent the House. It is for you to decide of yourselves what the resolution of the House will be. So with that, uh, unless you have any more questions. So, the former deputy first minister and like in lieu of one that we have in, in, like, in lieu uh, in lieu of yeah, one that we've had for the first minister. I I hear some evidence that it's it's 
it's placard on the, the office rather than the individual because otherwise it would be outside of the remit of our constitutional duties. So with that, we will vote on the motion. This House would send its condolences to the, the former Deputy First Minister. Uh, all those in favour of offering their condolences say aye. Aye. I got 26. And all those against, please raise your hands and say nay. Nay. I see two. And if anyone is abstaining on the motion and will not vote at all, uh, please raise your hand and say meh. Meh. I think it's uh, by a margin of 26 to 2. Uh, the ayes have it, and therefore the House resolves itself to offer its condolences to the Deputy First Minister recently deceased. And with that, we move swiftly onwards to President's questions before getting into this debate this evening and on the slightly more enjoyable topics. I say enjoyable, it's a relative term. Um, so, if anyone has any questions for me, uh, please raise your hands. Mr. Sullivan. What did the President have for breakfast this morning? I made a very special effort today. Um, I went to the gym this morning because midway through the semester I kind of decided, you know, I have to, I have to show some sort of fight against that, uh, you know, horizon of death that meets all men at some point. <laughs> I went to the men and women and those who don't subscribe to neither binary because binary is improved. <laughs> So yes, I went to the gym and after popping some brawn and lifting some weights. Who's wrong? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I elected to have myself a very nice steak too with uh, beans and cheese. It's very nice. And uh, alas, I then had. Uh, Pizza the, the, the later this evening that well I, I say I had I then hideously burnt it so I, all I can say I've had today is my breakfast of a baked potato baked beans and cheese at about nine o'clock this morning so uh, does that suffice them uh, the honourable members that uh, of my dietary uh, health condition or no or no and with that we finally have uh, some staff debate this evening after record time I think uh, this house would reintroduce the death penalty. Opening for the proposition, it's my pleasure to introduce our external leader, Mr. Ryan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to speak to you tonight. Now, as the opening government for the proposition, it is my duty to uh, define this motion of this House would reintroduce capital punishment. Now, a quick caveat before we begin. Um, reintroduce, now, of course, this does create the context of the United Kingdom and uh, the capital punishment laws that existed prior to their ab abolition in 1968. However, this will not be a carbon copy. We want to push this forward as we will learn from the lessons of um, that system in two main factors. One, uh, we will recognize, of course, the ability for the individual to redeem and offer that facility and to, to minimize uh, innocent deaths through the system uh, to such an extent will be numerically and statistically negligent. So, um, with that said, capital punishment. Punishment within the context of the judiciary comes under three abstract concepts. That would be retribution, the punishment fitting the crime. That would be reformation, 
um, the development or character of the individual in such a sense that they would feel remorse for their actions and develop. Uh, and then that would lead, of course, to reconciliation, which would be their reintroduction into society as productive citizens. Now, of course, we all recognize this, and we also recognize that for some, sometimes reconciliation is not an option. For instance, uh, let's say, although a prisoner may have reformed themselves, their crimes may be so heinous as to prevent them from being reconciled into society. Therefore, um, any reduction in that sentence would undermine the retribution aspect in saying that it, that's the maximum sentence, that is the minimum sentence that could be given for that heinous crime. And I think we all agree with that as well, the necessity of a life sentence. However, I want to put forward a different um, perspective. Right? Let's say we had someone who can't be reformed. Let's say we can't reform an individual. Let's say they have no empathy, they have no remorse for what they've done in their actions. Um, let's say it's a severe case of anti-social personality disorder, for instance. So if there was a conversation we were having about deep presence in mental health, for instance. Um, that would be your Ted Bundy type, right? Just to use an example. So we have someone who killed 30 women. Um, someone who, by the very nature of their disorder and lack of empathy, is unable to reform in their behaviour in the sense that uh, they find no remorse, they have very little in the way of conscience, and although they may intellectually understand that what they did is wrong, they simply won't care. And as a result of that, are completely irreconcilable. So, on that point, go ahead. So, wouldn't it be better to send such horribly mentally ill people to a facility where doctors could help them rather okay. than kill them? On that point, yes, I, I get you. Okay. So, right, we're talking about uh, going into a mental health facility. We're talking about someone who has barely any chance of reforming their behaviour by the nature of their disorder. And indeed, if you want to send them to a hospital, oftentimes that's in the intention that they would get well. This is not the case of someone with such yes, go ahead. On that point, no, it's not. Uh, you send people under a mental health order to if they're a danger to themselves or to other people with a diagnosed mental health condition. It's nothing to do with them getting better. Okay. Fine, I take that point. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that this is someone who is incredibly dangerous and risky to everyone around them and also of very little value inherently uh, due to their nature of not being reformable. So what I am proposing is that we would offer the death penalty to people who cannot be reformed, therefore cannot be reconciled, as a way to cut our costs, indeed, for the lengthy imprisonment of such people who have very little in the way of reformation ahead of them. And indeed, let's uh, approach the moral, go ahead. Sorry, it costs more to actually uh, go through the death penalty in the States, it costs... In the States, yeah, it costs about 30 times the amount, I think, to send somebody to death and not to keep you in jail. Right, we're not talking about the States, is that a strong man, it's not the facility which we're talking here. We're talking specifically in the UK. So, in the capacity of the moral argument of keeping someone in prison being more merciful, right, because we're not killing them, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with the morality of sending money to keep someone alive and fed in prison with three square meals a day, whereas we have people on our streets who need that money more. And say, the, you know, for instance, our homeless, right, who of course haven't got any of these luxuries and yet have far more uh, potential value than I would say a Ted Bundy type ever would. Um, I would feel much more uh, 
comfortable in investing that money there or indeed in anywhere else in the public sector in any of the hundreds of more worthy charities uh, and uh, departments that could use that money than investing in what is literally the scum of society. Now, outside of the moral aspect, there's something else that needs to be considered as well, and that's the necessity. Uh, we have to consider the necessity of keeping someone in prison uh, for such a long period of time, and indeed for the entirety of their lives, without uh, hope of becoming better, without hope of improving themselves, or indeed having any redemption, which is what we hope for, even for people who have life sentences. We hope that they will in some way redeem themselves and I don't know, find God or something, whatever they want to do. Um, indeed, this is not the case of someone of that nature. Um, so what I'm proposing is a death penalty that allows for redemption, so that people who say are innocent and are put to death, um, or aren't put to death for being innocent, and I would say having a grace period of 10 years from conviction is not a death penalty is put through by jury, it is a death penalty that is decided upon by experts. And the panel of experts, of course, should be comprised of the judges, should be comprised of mental health, um, criminal psychologists. And of course, this year would act as a buffer against people who would be innocent and put to death. Um, and it would do so for the following reasons. Let's consider that you're put to death, uh, or sorry, you are charged with life in prison with the possibility of being put to death at the end of this 10 year period. If you are innocent, then certainly by that you should pass the standards naturally of any sort of panel that would judge your reformation or indeed judge your character to see if you have indeed um, reformed your behaviour. And of course it would also allow for time for new evidence to arise in your imprisonment where you will be vindicated. So uh, I believe that that sums that up to be honest with you. So to conclude. We are proposing a system that will learn from the lessons of the previous system by allowing an opportunity for innocent people to not be put to death on the basis of them being sound mind. We are allowing for sorry, we are allowing for people who are the worst in our society no longer be invested in our society with our public funds. Um, and with that I urge you to propose a motion back. President of the Law Society, in the case for the opposition, Ms. Sasha Conn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and good evening to the House. Criminals do not die by the hands of the law, they die by the hands of other men. Those were the words of George Bernard Shaw reflecting on the topic that we find ourselves debating this evening. My name is Sasha Conlon and I speak for the opposition in order to speak against a motion that proposes to reintroduce a sanctioned practice that is entirely deficient of morality, legality and certainty. The proposition seeks to argue that capital punishment is a justifiable act of retribution for capital offences and that there is a place for it in society. However, we the opposition submit on the contrary that capital punishment is an unjustifiable practice that is immoral, illegal, and uncertain. I shall be addressing the morality argument of those three. One of the key arguments that the proposition will seek to advance in favor of this motion is this notion of retribution, that the execution of a criminal is a final form of punishment that is proportionate to the crime. However, we entirely oppose this line of reasoning. Capital punishment is not an enactment of justice through retribution. It is an act of vengeance. The practice of punishing killing with killing 
is one that is morally reprehensible, leaving our society in a cycle of barbarism. In the words of Robert Heinlein, under what circumstances is it moral for a group to do that which is not moral for a member of that group to do alone? On that point? Yes. Uh, indeed. Well, killing can be justified through its necessity. So, for instance, the state can, in this instance, kill if someone is deemed to be a serious threat uh, to society. And indeed, you can kill someone else for being a serious threat to yourself, for instance, in self-defense and the reasonable use of force. Yes, but in those instances of self-defense, it's usually found that with the evidence in the case that somebody would not be guilty of the crime and they would be acquitted on that basis. However, we submit that in instances when there is an act of premeditated murder and someone is found guilty for that, that's what's concerned here. And that's when the instances of capital punishment really kick in. But we say, as the opposition, that the value of life is inalienable, it's universal, and it is applicable to every member of society, criminal or not, murderer or not. The retributive approach that the state uses to justify the practice of killing criminals is morally flawed and cannot be regarded as valid grounds for supporting capital punishment. For this reason, the proposed motion of reintroducing the practice of capital punishment must be opposed. It must also be said that this notion of retribution through capital punishment is inconsistent with other forms of criminal sanctions. The death penalty is only enacted upon criminals that are guilty of murder. No other category of criminal is punished in a manner that reflects their original conviction. How can we attempt to justify such an extreme approach for criminals named guilty of murder when other criminals do not face proportionate punishment for other notably abhorrent crimes? Therefore, it is clear that not only is capital punishment morally wrong, it is inconsistent with the corrective system, and any motion to bring back such a morally and legally questionable practice should be met with opposition. On that point, um, we've already said that we, we've already said that we don't plan to exactly adopt the system that was present in the UK had capital punishment, and under the model we've created with panels of experts, judges, there is no reason to suggest that the remit of capital punishment could not be expanded for equally important crimes and our dynamic approach will better suit how we punish criminals. So you say that you could bring capital punishment in for crimes less than murder? That wouldn't really be a reflective principle in fairness because that would be like saying you would bring in capital punishment for an act of rape when really the appropriate response there would be some form of corporal punishment. What we submit is that if we're willing to do this kind of reflective thing where we take a life when a life is taken, that is morally reprehensible when we're not prepared to do that kind of thing with any other crime because prison seems sufficient for those. I don't say that every crime is equally abhorrent, just to clarify for the House, but we can't follow a system that does that. Sorry, that's perfect. She's only just finished her point I would actually just like to rejoin to one of the proponents' points about um, allowing this notion of remorsefulness and reconciliation to allow you to obviate capital punishment. So, is that saying then that the value of life and your uh, deservedness to keep your life if you're a criminal who's guilty of murder hangs on how sorry you can convince someone that you are? I know that I've been in circumstances where I've been able to convince people that I'm sorry of things and I'm quite simply not. People can put on performances, they can put on acts all the time. So to say that we only have to demonstrate that we're remorseful for an act of killing is enough to get us off of death, uh, what's the phrase, death row? 
that, I'm sorry, is completely flawed on a moral basis because it's actually legal to lie in some circumstances, to pretend to be remorseful, but it's also inconsistent and very unreliable for a legal system to put into place. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, yes, so it's not a case of someone going, oh, I'm really sorry, please let me off. It's a case of having a panel judge that has examined your behaviour over the last decade and has taken into consideration a whole host of factors, not just how sorry you are, also what you've done to reform your behaviour. And indeed, if you have been in poor behaviour and throughout um, your time in prison, and indeed how well you respond to the treatment. I appreciate your point and I, I see what you say, however that still doesn't stop someone from putting on a performance. They can do it for 10 days, they can do it for 10 years, and um, these sorts of things will go on public record, the correct existence methods, so that won't stop anybody from really pretending to be remorseful in order to escape the punishment that awaits them in the death penalty. I am conscious of time but I will continue. We do acknowledge that whilst the procedures of capital punishment now are seen as less uh, inhumane and less painful, namely the lethal injection, we submit that this is still not enough to condone the act of the execution. The lethal injection, which is one of the most common forms of capital punishment in the United States in particular, is actually a highly morally deplorable method because it involves medical personnel to have an active, direct role in the killing of someone, in the taking of a life. We can go as far back to Hippocrates to determine a valid, so fundamental medically ethical principle, and that is do no harm. So when we allow lethal injection, when we allow capital punishment, we are allowing medical personnel to go against the very principles that they must operate by, by taking a life. And that is not a corrective system that we want to subscribe ourselves to. It's morally reprehensible. I will summarize in the interest of time, but we say that by facilitating the act of execution, we are facilitating a society that is brutalized, a law that is brutalized, and a state that is brutalized. It tarnishes the value of life, and we teach future generations that killing is wrong by killing. The question for us today is not whether criminals deserve to die, but whether the state deserves to kill. We submit that they do not. We ask that you oppose this motion. Another round of applause for her maiden speech in this chamber. Um, this is statistics released by the Home Office of the United Kingdom, by the way. There were 300 recorded unlawful killings, which rose to 565 in the year 1994 and 833 in 2004. There's a clear pattern that before and after the abolition of the death penalty, the numbers of unlawful killings has more than doubled. Between 1900 and 1965, they ran at an average of 29 per year. And there were 57 in 1965, which is the first year of the abolition. That's more than double. This number further rose to 214 murders in 1995. 
This proves that the death penalty acts as a useful deterrence to unlawful killing. The next number that I'm going to talk about is about cops. Yes? Is it not somewhat misleading to use absolute numbers in this circumstance, given the population of Britain also rules quite a great deal between these dates? Uh, well, yes, I completely take that point. That is also true. There are also numbers of killings per capita that you can see, which um, is also in line with the increase of the population. And I completely agree with that point. But if you, um, if you do look at the Home Office website and look at their figures, it also supports my argument. Um, I did not take down those figures, I'm so sorry. So, okay, the next number I'm going to talk about is about costs, right? It costs £65,000 to imprison someone in this country once you take into account the costs of um, the police, the investigations, the appeals, the court processes. After signing a man to prison, it costs a further £40,000 to keep a prisoner incarcerated per year. This is money coming from taxpayers. No, thank you. This is money coming from taxpayers that can be used to fund higher education or even the NHS. On that point. No, thank you. Um, with regards to an earlier question that was posed to my partner Ryan about how it costs more to execute in the states, um, that is true, but it is not true in the case of the United Kingdom. This is because America has endless appeals and delays in carrying out death sentences that are allowed. The US legal system, uh, prisoners in the US legal system that faces the death penalty spend up to an average of 12 years on that road. That's why it's so expensive. In Britain, on the other hand, in the 20th century today, the average time in the condemned cell is about 3 to 8 weeks. And um, you don't spend as much time on that road, and so the costs are far less than compared to spending 40000 a year keeping these people incarcerated for life. On that point? Yes. Yeah, but America has this long system of appeals to lower the number of innocent people who end up getting executed. If we just up down the number of appeals, more innocent people will be executed. Um, on that point, uh, as my partner Ryan pointed out, in order to um, reduce the risk of wrongful conviction, which is also a point that I am coming to, we are not here to um, impose that penalty by a jury. As Ryan has already pointed out, we are going to give like criminals a period, like say 10 years, for them to show that they have been reformed and rehabilitated. And in within that period of 10 years, you can carry out, you know, a lot more. Uh, um, you could carry out a lot more safeguards that would prove them innocent if they were innocent. Also, on the, th on the point of wrongful convictions, DNA analysis and forensic evidence have evolved greatly over the last 50 years since the abolition of the death penalty. We have forensic science today. We have so many safeguards such as like looking at um, voice recognition, credit card records, mobile phone, GPS satellite tracing that can um, you know, prove overwhelming physical evidence to a crime, therefore reducing the risk of wrongful conviction even further, even like reducing it to a zero is completely possible. Um, I'll now give you some real case examples. Um, Matthew, you actually brought up a point to Ryan asking about um, why aren't we sending um, people with antisocial disorders to hospitals instead. For example, um, the Yorkshire Rapier Peter Sutcliffe murdered 13 women and attempted to murder another 7 women. He is serving 20 concurrent sentences of life imprisonment 
at this moment. He was first put in a secure hospital, but last year moved to prison because he has shown no signs of remorse, no signs of being able to rehab, to be able to be rehabilitated, and the hospitals have not been able to help him. Surely someone who's murdered 13 women and attempted seven other murders can be safely executed. Another example is Ian Brady and Mira Henley. This both of them were convicted for child murders. Mira died in prison in 2002. Ian has been held in a mental hospital since 1985, and until today has shown no signs of recovery. He went on hunger strike, no thank you, and was forced through a tube. Now this is taxpayers' money going towards the livelihood of these heinous criminals who have no place in our society. Why are we funding their healthcare? Why are we funding their food? Why are we no thank you? Why are we funding their facilities in prison? Rehabilitation does not always work. It is it is very idealistic to think that it can, and I hope it can, but it is also very impractical and a very unrealistic idea. No, thank you. Another case that I'm going to cite is the case of George Norman Johnson, who served 20 years in prison for murdering a man in the 1980s. He was released and later he murdered again. This was also true in the case of Desmond Lee and Ernest Wright, both serving 14 years and 26 years respectively. After their release, they both killed again in separate cases. Life imprisonment is not a good alternative to the death penalty. We can like introduce the death penalty in the most safest of ways and then cut our losses because these people have proven themselves to be unreformable and cannot be rehabilitated. They're going to die in prison anyway, so why are we wasting our money? Um, my last point is on international law. The death penalty is not actually illegal under international law, so we are not going to be against any convention by reintroducing it. Um, there are actually, the UN has actually endorsed safeguards implementing um, a set of guidelines to safeguard um, the rights of people who are on that road. So it's not actually illegal as long as we have safeguards implemented. And this safeguard we will implement because we're going to learn from the past system that did not work. Um, in conclusion, life imprisonment for all the reasons that have been argued is not a good alternative to the death penalty. We need the death penalty for people who can never be rehabilitated because they are a waste of money. statistics that you mentioned because of various factors uh, a member of the house stated uh, population growth and there could be a lot of other social factors which we are simply not really equipped to talk about today to explain that. I would also only accept the uh, deterrent argument anyway if there were no more murders when this was in case and there still are so it cannot really be justified in my opinion. I will also rebut some of what you said about international law towards the end of my speech. 
So after all, uh, it is a lost song, be it a terrific debate, and uh, I have turned my cloak for this instance. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll be discussing some of the implications of reintroducing uh, the death penalty for the rule of law, uh, our legal institutions, and uh, again some of the international law implications uh, um, of it. So when we're thinking about capital punishment, we must not forget what we're really talking about, in that it is state-sanctioned, state-implemented murder, and more specifically than that, no thank you, using the legal systems and mechanisms in place within our society to create a world where a legitimate, legal outcome of a case for a dependent, dependent could be their death. We can almost think of it as conveyor belts. A defendant commits a crime, he goes through the courts, he is convicted. If he is convicted, a sentence will be handed down, and at the minute it could be a fine or community service or custodial sentence. But in the horrifying new reality proposed by this side of the house, the conveyor belt could lead directly into a coffin. On that point. Uh, no time. The introduction of this butchery into our courts will completely undermine the rule of law we cherish and respect, and because it is in such direct opposition to the way the rule of law has developed since the death penalty was abolished in the United Kingdom, it would be illegal to reintroduce the death penalty. It goes against everything that we cherish within our current legal system. How can we respect our judiciary? How can we have confidence in our courts as arbiters of fairness in our society if they are empowered to carry out an act so manifestly unfair against an individual's right to life, so disarmingly unjust as the forceful taking of another's life? That is not even to mention the staggering hypocrisy of having a death penalty in the first place, especially when it comes to murder cases, exactly the kind of cases that you're talking about. Yes? Um, just a question. So do you believe that criminals should keep their rights once they are sent to prison, as in, so they should keep their human rights and not be stripped of them. It is perfectly legitimate to say that some prisoners' human rights, such as their freedom of movement, are uh, are affected by sending them to prison. But I think that that is where we can draw we can draw the line. Some of those rights uh, we can say that is justifiable, but I don't think that any of us on this earth have the power to justify taking another's life, uh, especially when we, you know, you can take someone's life, but we can't get someone's life. From, you know, Coming back to my point about the hypocrisy of having a death penalty in the legal system as a punishment for murder, you were brought before the courts for extinguishing someone's life against their will, and what is the court's justice in this instance to extinguish your life against your will? To quote Batman, uh, you know, <laughs> quite a legitimate moral authority, I would say. If you kill a killer, the number of killers in the world remains the same. The kind of justice that would be handed down in the courts if the proposition had their way is not justice. What is the law for if not justice? No, thank you. As well as this, I am certain that reintroducing the death penalty uh, would deter some of our brightest students from pursuing a career both at the bar and in the judiciary. I know that I personally could never work within a system where I could one day be bound to pursue a cause that would put a man to death. How many talented future lawyers, future judges, uh, would avoid a career in the legal profession if the death penalty was reintroduced? On that point. Uh, yes. But there would be people like myself who would go into the profession because they think it's a worthy thing to do. I am literally just about to address that. I would like to refute any assertion coming from anyone uh, that judges would simply not hand down death sentences. Uh, it is my view, just as much as some may be put off by the death penalty, others within the profession would ask celebrate this introduction to the Honourable Member of the House here. 
to back up this point, the uh, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which is comprised of members of the uh, Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, uh, the highest judges, supposedly the most learned, uh, they already regularly hear death penalty cases from uh, some smaller, uh, well, I've heard about empire countries, I'm not sure if that's correct <laughs> <laughs> to say, uh, but it's true. Um, they hear them from these countries who don't have a highest court of appeal of their own. And uh, we, we'd be fooling ourselves, given the surprising ease which with uh, the justices of the highest court in the United Kingdom hear these cases, which could end in an individual's death. Uh, we, we really cannot accept that um, judges handing down the death penalty would be the exception rather than the rule, and that they would be reluctant to deal with such cases, uh, especially as we have evidence that the highest judges are already able to deal with these cases. Uh, no, thank you. Um, bring me on to my next point. And exactly, exactly what crimes will be punishable by death? You have mentioned murder, but which murders? All murders involve the taking of life, uh, and I accept that some are more you know, heinous, we would call them more heinous than others, but, but where do you draw the line? You haven't proposed any kind of test On to use. But yeah, go ahead. We have given a test that as soon as a someone convicted is proven beyond any reasonable doubt that they are with that they are capable of rehabilitation, only then will they be subject to this penalty. We have provided a test for that in a very Okay. Uh, I okay, I apologize then if I was mistaken and not, not quite understanding your test. Uh, rehabilitation. rehabilitation is not the main aim of our prison system that we have today. Uh, it is incarceration and putting these people away for the only kind of justice that we can validly offer because we cannot justify killing people. Uh, uh, ah yes, here we go. Once death is a legally valid punishment for any crime as well, what is to stop the extension of the policy? Uh, in countries that already have a death penalty, you can see this already, in China, economic crimes are punishable by death, in Iran, a so-called apostasy. And once we open the floodgates, once we uh, uh, make it a valid option uh, for one crime, we cannot stop people arguing for its application in others. And this would be especially dangerous in cases involving terrorists. If a terrorist commits murder and the death penalty is applied to them as it would be to other murderers, then their effectiveness only increases because they become monsters. Just to briefly finish up, uh, what Schrinder said, international law, it is true it doesn't necessarily prohibit the death penalty, but the spirit of documents like the European Convention of Human Rights and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are in utter opposition to the implementation of capital punishment. The kinds of countries that, that flaunt this international law, China, Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, those are the kind of countries that flaunt it. And in Iran and Pakistan, at least nine people under 18 were executed in 2015. That's not we, what, what we want our society to be. And it's for this reason and all the other reasons discussed that I beg the House to oppose this motion. Speaker, the Honourable Mr. Ryan Neal said. 
Now, our pitch point was to define the model of how exactly we are going to reintroduce capital punishment. Now, I'm going to briefly go over his central points in this. Firstly, we are not reintroducing the system that existed before the abolition of capital punishment. This has been something that has been slightly supported by what the opposition have been saying, suggesting that we are going to turn into barbarians, as we obviously were back in the 60s. No, what we have been saying is that we are going to introduce a new system, a dynamic system, which then allows us to best suit all in society by allowing this punishment for criminals. We brought up, well, we brought up, Ryan brought up his speech, the three R's, which are central to what prison is about, reconciliation, reformation, etc. And that we have this as the criteria for what capital punishment is meant to be about. Through this we see that capital punishment is not the same system that it used to exist. It addresses many of the concerns raised about morality and the rule of law by the opposition and proves a much better system. No. What we heard then from Sharinder was providing statistics on capital punishment, about offenders existing in this system, what the system meant back in the day, and how since it's been abolished, trends that have started propping up. Now that I've gone over that, I would like to pose the, juxtapose these arguments against what the opposition has said. Now I'd first like to start off with the arguments made by the first speaker for the opposition, that about morality, about how absolutely reprehensible it is for us to even consider capital punishment. Now, this is obviously entirely false. The reason is that what first opposition refused to try and address is the role of victims. This is something that alarmingly has not been raised by their side of the house so far this evening, and it is for an obvious reason. Because they are those that we should be caring about most in this debate. And the opposition's failure to mention them in two-thirds of their speeches shows that they clearly know that their role in this supports our side of the house. No. What we have what we have is when we ignore capital punishment, when we don't have it as an option, there is going to be much reoffending. That's the case, we see it in the news all the time. On that point. Yes. How exactly does somebody in life in prison reoffend? Life, a life sentence is not a life sentence. And the point is that about a third of people who serve life sentences spend about actually 10 years of that sentence in prison. Gaining a life sentence does not mean you will die in prison. As soon as you are finished with your sentence, you are completely free to reoffend again. And this is what happens. Alright? No. Our system has a totality to it by which we remove people who, as the criteria set out by Mr. Neal, are completely detrimental to society and have no hope of rehabilitation. That they then be removed. Uh, yes. Do you feel that with your current system there might not be consistency and it's quite arbitrary the measures that you're putting in place as the so-called test that you introduced? No, I don't believe so, because I think the importance of the test that we have set out is about rehabilitation, which contrary to what Shay has said, I believe is what our prison system is all about. And if he believes that all we are doing with criminals is putting them away, I feel that he's the one who has the rather bleak view of our prison system, as we should be hoping that prisoners can reintegrate into society. What we have is when there is a case of a person who completely cannot and this is what exists, and that is someone that we remove from society. And that is what our plan is about. Now, on to what was said again. We move on to the second speaker for the opposition. And what he said about the rule of law. Now, I do not believe what we have said here undermines the rule of law. You mentioned crimes against terrorists or in Pakistan. We are not adopting a Pakistani system. We are not going to have such extrajudicial measures. <laughs> Yes, we are reintroducing capital punishment, that's what we want, but it's going to be a new and dynamic system, one which better suits society, and it doesn't give room for the slippery slope that Shea believes exists when it doesn't. 
Instead, we are going to be able to create a society which is much safer. What we are thinking about is the danger these people present. That is the main point about what our system is. And about the fact that we have seen that when we don't properly deal with criminals of this variety, then society is much more dangerous. We've already heard about the cost on taxpayers of running these prisons. Now, if we look about where someone can stay in prison for their whole life, we look at the issue of a whole life order, which currently about 70 people are serving in the UK. I would argue that is, in a way, more inhumane than capital punishment. Can you imagine getting yourself put in the position where you're put in a cell and you will be there until the day you die? If you were arrested there at the age of 20, 23, whenever, you've got 70 plus years to live in that cell, in four walls, within one's... Yes? So would you accept that, uh, while possibly your test is, is what you're proposing, that it would be more apt, in the case of these whole life sentences, to accept a voluntary sentence of death? Voluntary capital punishment? No, because we've already addressed the cost of keeping someone in prison, 40,000 a year for incarceration. We've addressed the needs of the homeless, of the deficits within our own society, and these, this is something we need to address by addressing the inequalities and the inefficiencies in the prison system. And that is why capital punishment must be reintroduced on this non-voluntary basis. All right, and what we've already said is that this is not going to be strictly for murder. It was first opposition who made the statement that this is a sentence handed down for murder. What we have said is this is not necessarily the case. This could be a, this could be a sentence handed down to serial rapists, people of equal danger to society who are equally abhorrent. But as long as we can prove that they are beyond hope of rehabilitation, that they are not someone who we can reintegrate into our society, what we see is that the rule of law what the rule of law does is it supports an inefficient system where we are spending thousands every year to lock up people who are a complete detriment to society and someone who we don't need, do not need. Rather they are someone we should remove using capital punishment in as humane a way as possible. We are not using guillotines, we are not using firing squads. We want to find a way that we can make society safer for everyone. Now, our side of the house wins on the side of morality as well. We have outlined the three R's, we have outlined the statistics, the dangerous to victims these people possess. What is important is that we make society safer for everyone. Unless we plan on somehow spending the money to keep these hundreds of people in prison for their entire lives, which I don't believe is a system that any of us can deep down truly agree with due to the costs associated, that it is inefficient entirely. And if we let them out after their life sentence is over, when it's someone who we know cannot properly reintegrate, they are entirely a danger to everyone around them. We cannot support a system where we are letting people out of prison, we are a complete danger, and we cannot put that burden on the taxpayer to keep these people safe when we know that they are of advantage to no one. For that reason, we have clearly made the better case tonight, and therefore we must all propose this motion. Thank you. Therefore, the key, uh, debate this evening, I welcome before Mr. Matthew. Uh, good evening, chairs, and good evening, members. I'd of course like to start the debate today on such a heavy subject with a quote from the moral, moral authority, not Batman in this instance, but of course Oscar Wilde in The Importance of Being Ernest. He states, on occasions of this kind, it becomes more than just your moral duty, it becomes your pleasure. And I quote this to the House to assure you it is indeed your moral duty and your pleasure today to vote to oppose this motion. 
This motion is regressive, socially backtracking, and above all, dangerous. There are three tests for a motion to pass, and rarely does a motion fail all three. Yet today we are presented with such a motion. This motion fails the test of morality, legality, and certainty in its application. For this House to even consider passing this motion, it must be 100% certain that the death penalty is indeed moral, legal, and certain. We have seen how the proponents of this motion, despite themselves claiming it, have failed to demonstrate how the reintroduction of the death penalty is in any way moral, in any way legal, or in any way certain. We, however, as the opposition, have shown how it is indeed immoral and is, and is indeed illegal. The final test to satisfy them is that of certainty of application. The US Supreme Court Justice William Brennan states and observes the most barbaric fact of all is that the death penalty is not used in just the most stringent and certain conditions. How do we know this for innocence of the victims of it? The proponents for this motion have claimed that we as the opposition have failed to discuss this idea of victims in the system. Yet, the proponents of this motion as well have failed to mention the innocents that are executed and understandably why, for it would award the case our way. On that point? Uh, no, thank you. A report commissioned for Time magazine found around 4.1% of people currently on death row are likely to be innocent. This is a staggering 120 people. So I would ask, how can we lend our support and the support of this House to a motion where we know it cannot in any way be certain in its application? Yeah, please. Those people are waiting on the American death row and did so on trial by jury, which is not the system we proposed. This is entirely incongruent with the facts that we presented. It's entirely irrelevant to our case. Uh, I would submit not so in this instance because whilst the original trial in the American system is indeed by jury. The appeals process itself goes all the way up and in last instance to the Supreme Court, which is not by jury. Of course, the appeal process that your second speaker has already says is too expensive to be able to offer to people in this instance. And I agree with the speaker from the House earlier where he said to avoid this appeal process would indeed only increase the rate of innocence executed. We heard from your first speaker in this instance we wish to reduce the level of innocence killed to a negligible level. But I wonder, and this House should wonder, what is an acceptable level of innocence to be murdered in this instance? Is it five people? Is it ten people? Is it two percent of all those that go? We as the opposition submit that the acceptable level of innocent deaths is zero. And if that in this instance means no death penalty, then I implore this House to vote against the motion. No, thank you. When considering certainty, we must also consider the innocent people already executed. If we look at the most similar proposal proposed, it would indeed be still the American system. If we look at Carlos de Lunga from 1989, he was executed for a murder he did not commit. Cameron Todd Willingham in 2004, executed for an arson attack that he not only did not commit, but it later turned out to have been a tragic accident. Jesse Talfero in 1990, Claude James in 2000, executed by lethal injection for murders of which they were innocent. Leo Jones in 1998, executed based upon a forced confession. And finally, Larry Griffin in 1999, executed for a drive-by shooting, the main evidence simply being 
that his own brother had died in a similar situation six months earlier. That's probably the most odd interjection I've ever had. <laughs> All I would say in this instance, and is those are just a few of the cases that we've seen just how uncertain the death penalty can be in its application. The attorney for the condemned in America, Brian Stevenson, describes it the best way, where he states the death penalty is no more than a lottery of poverty, race, and politics. A game of luck in whether the condemned is innocent or not. The uncertainty of its application makes the death penalty and support for this motion untenable. When the innocent can be executed by the state, there is no going back, there is no reversing a mistake that has been made. In light of all the uncertainty, the reintroduction of the death penalty should be unimaginable to this House, and yet despite the overwhelming evidence, proponents for its return still sit before us. I would submit to this House, no thank you, I would submit to this House that it is heard arguments in favour by the proponents of this motion. However, they have failed to address and answer any of the three tests. We, as the opposition, submit this motion is immoral, illegal and entirely uncertain in its application. The points raised in favour are far outweighed by the evidence against. In closing, I would ask this House to consider the words of Albert Camus, where he states the death penalty is the most premeditated form of murder. We, the opposition, implore this House to reject the motion. Inmates 
span um, on that road is about 12 years because they keep on feeling and feeling, and which is good because it um, lessens the risk of wrongful conviction, but it also that is why it is so incredibly expensive to execute combat in in America. Here, however, the system that we're proposing, it's not like, oh, I commit a murder, I'm going to be dragged to court at the moment, I'm um, presumed guilty, I'm going to be sentenced to death. You know, um, the system that we are proposing is that um, the death penalty only imposed after we have exhausted all other forms of rehabilitation and reform of this person. You know, so it's like, there's no risk of wrongful conviction because you're going to go through a trial, you're going to be given a sentence, say, you're going to be incarcerated, um, like being put in a mental health facility, you're going to be um, monitored and examined by experts over a certain period of time before it is declared that you can be executed because you have shown no improvement whatsoever. And this has been proven in some of the cases that I cited in my point, that some people do not show improvement whatsoever and there are ways of going to keep incarcerated. Uh, firstly, there's been a lot of talk about cost, but we don't believe that you can put a price on human life. Uh, and secondly, um, I understand you, you keep uh, talking up this uh, appeal system that you have, and that supposedly you won't get any wrongful convictions. Respectfully, humans are not infallible. Uh, there is still the likelihood for mistakes to be made, no matter how you strengthen the system's policies. Take questions to the opposition, if anyone has any. Yes, okay. Um, question again. I would like to know if the legal system was flawless, if there were to be, theoretically, which is never happens, if, if the legal system was to never have the risk of killing any innocents, would the opposition support the death penalty? Yes. <laughs> the value of human life is undeniable. It is an incontrovertible point that we have made repeatedly this evening. We cannot support a system that thinks it's valuable, that thinks it is appropriate to take a life for taking a life. That is a system that's just a landslide of barbarism, as I've said last time that Mr. Dobbin took some issue with these words. That is basically what it is. We cannot advocate murder, the state murder of murderers, because where does that leave us? It is because of the value of human life that we that we propose this motion today. It is that we don't want people falling through the cracks of our inefficient legal system, self-serving maybe 10 years of a life sentence actually in prison, whenever they are clearly a risk to everyone around them, or whether it's in the tens of thousands of pounds we spend every year keeping people in prison, wherever our own UK citizens who have done no wrong are dying of starvation on the streets. It's for these reasons, that we believe capital punishment is the best way to protect human life of everyone due to their danger to regular citizens, their danger to mental health care staff, their danger to other inmates. For all of these reasons, we believe that capital punishment is the best protection for human life across the board. And it's for that reason that we believe it should be reintroduced. And with that, we move on to abstaining questions. So if you think uh, neither side have really uh, convinced you as of yet, uh, if, you, if there's any points that both sides have missed that you'd like them to clarify if you have any questions for them. Uh, Dr. Gunn? So I actually stand at the point where I'm for uh, capital punishment, but I think it's completely implausible as a thing to ever even introduce in the UK. But what I'd like to come to is a point both sides have touched on where they go, you've literally just stated it's not moral, and you've stated it is moral. 
No one's actually got into the argument of morality and where does morality come from. So I'm sure that you've got something lined up as to why you don't think it's moral and why you think it is. So can you explain to the House why you don't think it's moral and you do think it is moral to execute somebody? Uh, proposition, you get first round of response. Um, in the interests of morality, um, we are comparing the moral argument to the current system, to the execution. So of course we're looking at someone being engaged for life uh, indefinitely for the entirety of their existence in comparison to just also the morality of keeping such an arrangement going and the necessity of that being part of the moral aspect um, and that being unnecessary and of course more expensive over time than simply just cutting that and of course being more moral to invest that money of which we're putting into the lowest uh, scum of society in my opinion uh, over to people who are much more worthy of the funds and programs that deserve far more. Uh, firstly, to agree with your point on the implausibility, <coughs> I, wish, I hope the rest of the House has acknowledged that point, but on the point of whether it's immoral or not, it's the question of the fact that morals are subjective from the next person to the next, but this is enshrined in law, this is enshrined in domestic law, in international law, and what we have to look at in this instance is by offering the death penalty, what we're actually doing is taking away a particular person's right to re rehabilitate taking away a particular person's right to potentially reform for their offences in this matter, and that face worries me. <laughs> not in general, just... <laughs> you do not get the right response, Dr. Uh, oh, that question's to the proposition again. Oh, there's so many of you, it's really annoying. Yourselves? Um, it's been generally alluded to by the proposition, but more specifically uh, by the second um, speaker of the proposition, that the people that you want to kill have no place in society. And you used the example of someone, and I can't remember the name of them, but you said that they were actually in a mental institute, and you believe that they have no place in society and should be killed. So you're saying, effectively, and I hope you can clarify this, because I find it quite alarming that you would argue it, that this person has no place in society and should be killed because of an action they committed while having mental health issues. Can you clarify? Um, well, to clarify, the people that um, I cited were like really heinous murderers. So this is repeat murders. It's not like one murder with a mental health issue that he was provoked or something. This is like repeated again and again and again. As Ryan pointed out, the example of like that with antisocial personality disorder. Now, this there are certain mental issues <coughs> that cannot be helped realistically in practicality. We have no cures for them. And if these people have been like Ian Brady was sent to a mental hospital and he's been there since 1985. He was moved to prison only last year because he, there is like no hope for him. You know, like there's no way to cure his mental disorder. It's um, it okay. like mental disorders. Well, yes, mental disorders in this sense isn't necessarily um, isn't necessarily something preoccupied. It could be psychopathic, for example. You know, because it's like psychologically proven that all serious killers have like some psychopathic um, trait within them. And that is not a mental trait that you can actually cure. So putting him in prison just wastes a lot of money. And he's like, where's a real fight if he's been sent to prison? He'll be in prison for his entire life at the cost of taxpayers. What's the point? 
Presentation to staff. <laughs> Opposition, would you like to respond to that? You've talked a lot about uh, these people who have committed such heinous crimes that have been sent to uh, you know, they've been sent to mental health institutions because presumably under the definition of the law they'd be insane. Quite often it would be hard to get a conviction of murder if someone did plead insanity anyway. So uh, you really would, even if you did introduce the system, have no legal rights to punish them with death. And uh, also, just because someone uh, does commit heinous crimes and does so because of mental health and will spend the rest of their life in a mental institution, doesn't mean they should kill them. And any questions for the opposition? Mr. Grant, um, if you want to talk about um, there are going to be innocents killed in this, and that's the, the very good point against it, but what if it was a certain situation, say, to take it to this extreme, let's say it's Hitler, should we give Hitler the death penalty? Yeah. <laughs> Let me be very clear to Harper's But the state itself cannot adopt a measure that allows them to deal with life as they want. The value of life is the one thing that every human being on the earth gets. It's the one thing that makes everybody in this room equal, that we all have it, and it must be respected by society. So yes, I would go as far as to say that even Hitler, one of the most deplorable people in history that will ever be remembered, still does not deserve the death penalty because a state that enacts murder against murderers is no better than the murderer itself. And it's meant to be the defining standard by which we live, and that is not something that I could personally subscribe to, and I would implore the House not to subscribe to either. I keep on interrupting the applause every time it's applause. <laughs> Please show more enthusiasm, guys. Um, yeah! Proposition, you'd like to respond to that. Life is a very fragile thing. Now, something that I believe we probably didn't get properly across on our side of the house is that we are not setting in any way a low bar for the need for capital punishment. In fact, what I believe is that our plan is to set incredibly high. As we've said, it's the need for there to be absolutely no hope for rehabilitation. What I believe is the case being made by our side of the house is that we only condone this in extreme cases. We would never advocate capital punishment taking a role unless we believe and can prove with absolute certainty that the person who we are giving the death penalty by mere fact that they exist and continue to live in our society, be it incarcerated or on the streets, that they present a risk to the life of others. We believe that absolutely everyone should have their right to life. But whenever someone commits actions that leads us to, us to believe that they have sacrificed that right for themselves, and when their continued existence is a constant threat to the right to life that we all possess as law-abiding citizens, it is then and only then that our side of the house would agree that capital punishment becomes a necessary measure. Uh, I have to say it's remarkable to see so many natural law theories so there is questions. Uh, yeah. So without any more abstaining questions to either side, uh, sort of black. I am curious to know what each side of the house thinks is the actual 
point of imprisonment because in regards to the prop, if the point is simply to, uh, hope I get this the right way around, if the point is simply to remove someone from circulation, Okay, I'm going to rephrase this because I have no idea where that was going. <laughs> there are two, two points for that. It's either remove a criminal from circulation from ordinary against some bystanders, and so to punish them, to put them in a little box for a long time and remove from them lots of freedoms of life. So on one hand, if you're putting them in there to punish them, uh, is, it, is it not a greater punishment to kill them? And if you're doing to remove them from circulation, is it not also better to kill them? But on the other hand, if you're doing each of those things, is it not more cruel? To put them in a tiny six foot by eight foot box for many, many years, is that not good in the government itself? Uh, in any sense, I'm quite impressed. Proposition, first round of response. Yeah, well, I had spoken really the purpose of punishing President Bush what we use for that is retribution, recognition, and rehabilitation. But the fact that it is in this capacity, of course, is the debate itself. But I will say this much. Um, yes, actually, if you're going to try and permanently take someone who is incredibly dangerous and has proved to be irreformable by circulation, then the death penalty is, of course, the most absolute way of doing that. Of course, we recognize that the absoluteness of the death penalty means that we must have a process of which to vet people and, of course, to test, of course, their reformability, I would say, to a certain extent. Um, so, yeah, the role of the president is, of course, to take them out of circulation to protect the population, as is the role of the state protect In fact, I will take this opportunity to just attack a point that was made by the opposition, or at least uh, one. we were, we were uh, talking about uh, any innocent life, of course, um, uh, being wrong. And in a moral sense, uh, I would agree. However, necessity dictates that sometimes innocent lives are lost for great good. And indeed, by your definition, there's no such thing as a uh, decent or necessary killing. Indeed, uh, would you, by your very pacifist stance, uh, dictate that we would move on to the Second World War, for instance, in the fear that innocents would have died as a result of the counter-attack. Sometimes, the greater good outstrips the ugliness of the act itself. Uh, the opposition. <clears throat> Sorry, one second. <laughs> so, um, point, just point of prison in the first instance. The furthest we can go, and our line in the sand in this instance, is that of deprivation. The liberty to remove someone from society, but by removing someone from society, you actually offer them the ability to reform, you offer them the ability to repent. We've heard the absolute, the absolution of the death penalty, and we've heard that we'll only commit someone to the death penalty, but 100% certain we can do that. There's no possible way to be absolutely 100% certain. If you look at some of the examples I gave, it took 16 years for the evidence to come out to exonerate some of these people. Under this system, they would have been dead for six before the evidence would have come out. Just on your uh, point raised with regards to World War II, we've just distinguished just war theory entirely different from civil matters in this instance. And finally, just to raise again the point of innocence, there's no way to guarantee 100% the person you're executing is not uh, innocent, and therefore it, it shouldn't be done. And with that, I think we'll move to a vote of the House. So, uh, I think we'll be doing two votes, as we do as always. Um, the first vote will be based on your prior opinion. So, if before you came into the room tonight, you were of uh, the opinion that in favour of the death penalty, uh, against it. Uh, start off. If you're in favour of the death penalty before uh, you heard the arguments this evening, please raise your hands and say aye. Aye. 
If you're in favor of the death penalty before you enter the room this evening, please raise your hands. Uh, Put that hand back up, sir. You put that down. And if you're against the death penalty before you enter the room this evening, please raise your hands up and say yay. If you have no prior opinion on the issue, before you enter the room this evening, please read. Want to pass the motion to say the members, non-members can vote for the next one. That's fine. Can we go to the next one then? Yeah, we'll do that. For this one. And if anyone had no prior opinion before they entered the room this evening, they were not in favour of any side of the argument, please raise your hand and say, man. And this is the binding vote of members of the literature and esteemed guests of the Law Society of Chicken I suppose you can't uh, yeah, um, so if you felt the proposition were more pers persuasive this evening, please raise your hands and say aye. You, you guys can say aye as well if you want. Right, sorry, goodbye. Pass that motion. Did you pass that motion to. I mean, it's a it's, 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 Come on. <laughs> You interrupted my counting, can't you? Put your hands up again. <laughs> there are literally over a dozen dogs. That's And all those who thought the opposition were more persuasive to the statement, please raise your hands and say, I guess I, because that, that's affirmative. Uh, <laughs> and if you thought that both sides were just as persuasive as each other, if both thought spoke equally well or equally rubbish, please raise your hands and say, And on the binding vote this evening, with seven ayes and eighteen nays and abstentions, the motion has failed. Thank you.
Doll Society because I only have a few weeks left in my presidency, sadly. I just like to take a moment to say thank you all so much for inviting us along. We love coming to this every year, but this is the first year I've actually gotten to do it. You always make me very welcome. It's a very healthy competition. And can I just say, it's fantastic to see such enthusiasm in a, in a society. I know that sometimes we struggle with the numbers for moving. You know, we're quite a small army. But uh, it's just really lovely to be here tonight, so thank you all so much. So I welcome you all to come up.